Spying has to be one of the most entertaining historical topics to learn about. You find great spy stories from any historical era. I mean, spy novels and spy movies are hugely popular for a reason. James Bond is awesome, right? Espionage and intelligence operations more generally have had an important role in just about every conflict in which the U.S. has been involved, starting with the revolution and highlighted by the uh, made-for-fiction intrigue of the Cold War. Almost as soon as the Revolutionary War began, and the Continental Army that, that evolved into the U.S. military was formed, Commanding General George Washington recognized that the Army needed to assign a unit to intelligence gathering. He initially gave that task to Knowlton's Rangers, which was a group of scouts uh, often credited as the first American military intelligence group. The most famous of Knowlton's Rangers, and probably one of the most famous spies in American history, is Nathan Hale, who was a 21-year-old former Connecticut school teacher. In the fall of 1776, Nathan Hale volunteered for what everyone knew was an exceptionally dangerous mission. The plan was to go undercover behind enemy lines onto Long Island, which was occupied by the British Army. Nathan Hale would pretend to be a teacher looking for work, but the real purpose of the mission was to gather intelligence on British preparations for an attack on Manhattan. How Hale's cover was blown is not 100% clear. A British officer posing as an American patriot may have tricked him into revealing his loyalties, or a colonial loyalist uh, who knew Hale's affiliations may have just turned him in. But one way or another, Nathan Hale was identified as a spy, captured, and given a death sentence. Hale's fame doesn't really come from the success of his operation, because it wasn't a success, uh, but from the resolve uh, with which he faced the gallows. A British officer on the scene for the hanging wrote, quote, he behaved with great composure and resolution. He was calm and bore himself with gentle dignity in the consciousness of rectitude and high intentions. He wrote two letters, one to his mother and one to a brother officer. He was shortly after summoned to the gallows. But a few persons were around him, yet his characteristic dying words were remembered. He said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. End quote. Not long after the formation of Knowlton's Rangers, George Washington recognized that the Army needed the support of a formal intelligence operation to act adjacent to, rather than under, the Continental Army itself. He appointed Major John Clark to lead the effort, and Clark began forming a network of agents and informants focused in areas occupied by the British, most notably New York and Philadelphia. That network became the immensely successful Culper Spy Ring, which, among other things, tipped off the Continentals to several planned British military attacks on American and French forces, to the betrayal of an American general, Benedict Arnold, who was providing top-secret information to the British, and to a British operation to make American paper money worthless by printing and introducing into circulation vast quantities of counterfeit currency. Spying on the British was an important part of the war effort, but counter-espionage, identifying British efforts to spy on the Continentals, was just as important. The British Army had an impressive network of informants and agents throughout America with often ambitious goals. One such goal was to use turncoats and infiltrators embedded among George Washington's personal bodyguard to take out the rebel commander. Fortunately, the plot was sniffed out by the colonists' Committee for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies before the assassination or capture of Washington could be carried out. The British agent embedded in Washington's inner circle 
Thomas Hickey was convicted of treason and hanged on the orders of General Washington. Washington was supremely aware of the potential danger that British intelligence operations posed to the fight for independence, noting, quote, There is one evil eye dread, and that is their spies, end quote. When caught, spies needed to be dealt with harshly, both to punish the spies themselves and to send a message to any other would-be spies. Washington wrote of Thomas Hickey's hanging, quote, I am hopeful this example will produce many salutary consequences and deter others from entering into the like traitorous practices, end quote. The leader of the counterintelligence operation that caught Thomas Hickey was a 32-year-old New Yorker named John Jay. Jay would go on to become the equivalent of Secretary of State under the pre-constitutional Articles of Confederation system, author of several of the Federalist Papers, and then first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. But U.S. intelligence agencies today also credit John Jay as the founding father of American counterintelligence. Now, in a successful spying operation, the spy doesn't get caught and hanged. British intelligence during the Revolution can provide us with a pretty good example of one of those, too. During the war, Ben Franklin famously led a mission to Paris, intent on convincing the French to aid the cause of American independence. One of Franklin's top aides, in fact, the secretary responsible for recording and, when necessary, translating negotiations with the French government and for preparing reports for the Continental Congress, was Edward Bancroft, a Massachusetts-born physician, scholar, and novelist. Unbeknownst to Ben Franklin, Edward Bancroft had accepted a payment of the equivalent of about $100,000 to keep British agents apprised of the dealings between France and the Colonials and to identify American intelligence assets working in Europe. Bancroft provided a wealth of useful information to the British spymasters and kept his work secret from Franklin and from many other Americans. In fact, it wasn't until the 1880s 60 years after Bancroft's death, that U.S. researchers learned that Edward Bancroft had been on the British payroll. And that was only because the British government had declassified records from the prior century. Bancroft's story brings to mind some of the Soviet Cold War operations that were only revealed when ex-Soviet archives were temporarily opened to the West in the early 1990s. Among other things, the archives confirmed that Alger Hiss and the Rosenbergs were, in fact, working for the Russians. But Robert Oppenheimer, uh, who had been under intense suspicion, had always refused KGB advances. The Soviet archives also revealed just how devious the KGB had been in sowing disinformation. KGB agents started and spread the rumor that the CIA created the AIDS virus and they spread stories among the American black community that Martin Luther King uh, was essentially controlled opposition designed to keep the black population from becoming radical. And the KGB also published counterfeit pamphlets disparaging blacks that appeared to be from Jewish groups, and counterfeit pamphlets that appeared to be from black groups that disparaged Jews. Cold War spy stories are some of the wildest and maybe even romanticized because you had the two sides with very different cultures and diametrically opposed philosophies. Civil War espionage tends to be more familiar. A Civil War spy didn't need to learn a new language or become familiar with an entirely new uh, set of cultural norms to go undercover. In some cases, spies were spying on people they already knew before the conflict. And geographically, the two capital cities, Washington and Richmond, are practically next door. So infiltrating social circles in the enemy's capital was a much simpler task. The most important function of Civil War intelligence was supporting the armies by reporting on the size and plans of enemy forces. A commander who learned even a day or two ahead of time how his adversary intended to proceed held a potentially big advantage. Solid intelligence could help a commander avoid getting caught flat-footed by an advancing enemy, or in some cases get the jump on an opponent who was temporarily vulnerable. 
Lee's famous Lost Orders, found wrapped around cigars in the lead-up to Antietam, gave General McClellan more boldness than Lee expected and changed the complexion of the first invasion into the North. Valuable intelligence often came from simply having the right person in the right place, often sympathetic civilians who didn't set out to be spies but happened to see or overhear important information. And you'll also notice that the, the ladies really shine in this series, uh, since they uh, could often access people in social circles that would be much more difficult for a male spy. And of course, there were plenty of undercover operatives too, and they sometimes produced a, a wealth of valuable information. Uh, that sort of thing was a dangerous business, though. If your cover gets blown, there's a good chance you'll be executed. Um as we shall see in this episode. That brings us to a subtle but critical distinction in terminology that we need to clarify before we get too far ahead of ourselves. The difference between a scout and a spy. When a cavalry officer was out in the field trying to gather intelligence for the uh, commanding general, he was almost always going to be a scout rather than a spy. The difference usually boils down to whether the individual operative is attempting to conceal his or her identity. A scout is a soldier in the field, often away from the main body, trying to figure out just what the enemy is up to. A scout may try to avoid being seen, but doesn't pretend to not be a scout. A spy, on the other hand, uses subterfuge to try to avoid being identified as a spy. When scouts get caught, they're taken prisoner, and if things go well, hopefully exchanged for another soldier before too long. Or at least that's what's uh, supposed to happen. And when spies get caught, they're quite often hanged. Where it sometimes gets confusing is that the same person might be a scout one day and a spy the next. Nathan Hale, for example, was a scout when he was riding with Knowlton's Rangers. And he became a spy when he decided to go undercover on Long Island. Predictably, there were plenty of disagreements over which label should properly be attached to an intelligence operative unlucky enough to fall into enemy hands. Often it came down to something as simple as what the captured individual happened to be wearing at the time. Wearing a military uniform at all times while in the field was a pretty dependable way to avoid the spy tag. Running around in civilian clothes, uh, especially in enemy territory, made you much more likely to end up with a noose around your neck. We're going to have a bunch of good spy stories to go through in this short series on Civil War espionage. Starting with the Union side in this part one, and then doing the Confederate spies in part two. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode, Civil War Espionage, part one. Before we get going, I want to take just a minute to mention a project that I'm involved with called DeedClaim.com. The site helps users create different types of real estate deeds in different states, like straightforward quick claim deeds, warranty and special warranty deeds common in property sales, and the transfer on death deeds and life estate deeds that are popular for estate plans. Uh, there's also numerous articles about real estate laws in all 50 states. So if you want to learn more about how real estate laws work in your state, you can find a wealth of information on deedclaim.com. That's D-E-E-D-C-L-A-I-M.com. When the Civil War started, both sides were mostly building their intelligence operations from scratch. Now, given that circumstance, it was only natural to turn to someone with experience in the field, or maybe in a closely related field. So at the beginning of the war, the federal side tried a privatized approach. In terms of name recognition alone, probably the most well-known spy network of the Civil War was the operation run by famous detective Alan Pinkerton at the behest of Union General George McClellan. Now, I have complete confidence that you could do a, a really interesting podcast episode that focuses... Uh, exclusively on the history of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. That's not this episode, but we are going to run through some of the highlights to kind of set the background. The uh, original Pinkerton organization was uh, founded in Chicago in 1850 by an immigrant from Scotland called Alan Pinkerton. 
Pinkerton was a, a cooper uh, by trade, but he kind of fell into police work uh, due to the high demand and low supply of experienced lawmen uh, in Chicago. And he soon found that he had a knack for it. Most of the Pinkerton Agency's early work involved security and private investigations for railroads, preventing train robberies and tracking down the robbers after they occurred. In an earlier episode, we mentioned the role of the Pinkerton Detective Agency um, and Alan Pinkerton personally in the often successful efforts to track down outlaws in the late 19th century. Uh, the Pinkertons were instrumental in high-profile investigations of notorious bank robber Frank Reno, the controversial Irish uh, group called the Molly Maguires, variously described as a secret society, a gang, a labor organization, or even a terrorist group, depending on, on who you ask, and also Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And as we mentioned uh, in the earlier episode, the Pinkertons were unsuccessful in catching Jesse James, and Pinkerton detectives' uh, bombing of the James family home, which caused a child's death, became a PR disaster for the firm. But the detectives did have plenty of successes to boast of, and Alan Pinkerton's detective book series called Bank Robbers and Detectives was widely read nationally, which helped garner the Pinkertons with their open eye logo that gave rise to the term private eye and their uh, we never sleep motto um, gave them a heroic reputation around the turn of the 20th century. Now, I think the, the context in which most people um, today uh, are the most familiar with the Pinkerton uh, National Detective Agency is their role as strike breakers in the labor disputes of the um, late 19th and early 20th centuries. The labor dispute uh, involvement, which largely occurred after, um, after founder Alan Pinkerton's uh, death in 1884, uh, that did a great deal to tarnish the Pinkerton uh, detective agency's reputation with the public. During those um, labor disputes, the Pinkertons worked uh, as essentially a private police force hired by management and tasked with maintaining security during unruly uh, un labor unrest. And by the end of the 1900s, they had a huge force. Uh, at one point, there were um, famously uh, more Pinkerton detectives uh, than there were full-time full regular soldiers in the U.S. Army. And along with security, the Pinkertons were also a sort of uh, private intelligence agency, using undercover detectives to infiltrate unions and report on their activities and sow dissent uh, among the workers. Depending on your perspective, the Pinkerton men were either hired goons sent in to rough up and intimidate workers so that they'd uh, give up on the efforts to unionize and negotiate better wages and working conditions, or they were a patriotic private lawmen who courageously rooted out communist subversives trying to exploit workers for radical political ends. Either way, the Pinkertons were involved in numerous high-profile confrontations. Two of the most famous were the Homestead Strike in Pittsburgh in 1892, um, in which, uh, while uh, working for Carnegie Steel, they engaged in a shootout with striking steelworkers that ended up in about a dozen deaths and the governor calling in the National Guard, and also the West Virginia Coal Wars in the 19-teens and 20s, which resulted in hundreds of deaths and culminated in the famous Battle of Blair Mountain and President Harding ordering federal troops to restore order. Interestingly enough, the Pinkerton organization is still around today, and they go by the name Pinkerton Incorporated um, as a subsidiary of the Swedish security giant called Securitas which also now owns two other big names, Loomis Fargo and Burns Security. Pinkerton Incorporated, which is now based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, generally keeps a lower profile than in earlier days and does all kinds of risk management and security work globally. For example, Amazon has allegedly hired Pinkerton Incorporated uh, for some of its recent anti-unionization efforts. Incidentally, in researching this episode, I came across a Newsweek article from 2021 titled 
Pinkerton Detective Agency adopts Pride logo in strangest case of rainbow washing yet. Now, if you're on the fence about whether modern America is beyond parody, I recommend that article to you. Okay, back to the topic at hand. During the Civil War, which is, of course, uh, before the labor disputes that, that we just mentioned, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency's first big action came in thwarting the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in Baltimore in early 1861, after he'd been elected but before formally taking office. The star of this first story is a New York-born woman by the name of Kate Warren, who is often credited as the first female detective. Now, that seems like an ambiguous, uh, hard-to-confirm description, but um, everyone seems to apply it to her, so I won't dispute the point. In early 1861, Kate Warren was 27 years old and had already been working for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency for four years. Alan Pinkerton, uh, in one of his later books, described Kate Warren as, quote, a commanding person with clear-cut expressive features, a slender, brown-haired woman, graceful in her movements and self-possessed. Her face was honest, which would cause one in distress instinctly to select her as a confidant, end quote. Uh, in pictures, Kate Warren looks like an unremarkable 19th century American woman. Like if you asked one of these um, uh, AI platforms to generate a picture of a woman who lived in the United States in the 1800s, and it just pulled up a picture of Kate Warren, you'd probably say, yeah, that's what I was expecting to see. Um, and that nondescriptness may have aided in her effectiveness as a detective. Um, but that's only my editorial conjecture. Perhaps more importantly, she had grown up wanting to be an actress, and she had a talent for undercover work. Kate Warren came to be a Pinkerton detective by answering an employment ad in a Chicago paper as a 23-year-old widow. She interviewed with Alan Pinkerton, who thought she was looking for secretarial work. But no, she wanted to be a detective. Pinkerton recounted telling her that lady detectives was not a thing, but Kate Warren insisted that she could do the job. She argued that women can get access to information that is unavailable to men, including from other women who would be less likely to confide in a male detective. And she also noted that women have a knack for getting men to talk about themselves. Pinkerton was convinced, and he decided to hire Kate Warren as the first female detective. In the four years between when she was hired and when the Civil War started, the period while she was in her mid-20s, she had several successful investigations, one of which was a high-profile case, and she earned Alan Pinkerton's confidence so fully that he entrusted Kate Warren with the safe travel of the soon-to-be President of the United States. Pinkerton had been hired by the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad to investigate some disturbances and threats in those mid-Atlantic cities. During the course of the investigation, Pinkerton detectives became aware of what they believed to be a plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln when he stopped off in Baltimore while on his way from Illinois to Washington to take the oath of office. Maryland was still in doubt early in the war, and Baltimore was known to be a hotbed of secessionist sympathies. Alan Pinkerton dispatched a handful of detectives, including Kate Warren, to Baltimore to try to uncover the details. Warren went undercover as a rich Southern belle and swiftly ingratiated herself into Baltimore's pro-Southern society. Kate Warren was from New York, but she had learned to pull off a convincing Southern accent during an earlier investigation in Alabama. Warren confirmed in conversations with fellow Southern ladies that there was indeed an assassination plot, and she even learned that the probable location for the murder was Camden Street not far from where the Orioles play today, and where Lincoln would need to ride by carriage to change trains. Pinkerton sent Kate Warren to New York to deliver news of the plot to Lincoln's people. Now, for his part, Lincoln's initial reaction was to brush off the report as rumors that weren't worthy of action, until a second independent source confirmed the information originally supplied by Kate Warren. Lincoln then agreed to add extra security and modify the published schedule. The president-elect left early from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to Baltimore in what sounds like an unconvincing disguise. 
Alan Pinkerton arranged for the wire transmissions from Harrisburg to Baltimore to be temporarily blocked, and Kate Warren arranged for a special train equipped with private cars for her sick brother. She met Lincoln on the train, pretending to be his sister, and stood guard alongside Lincoln's assigned bodyguard during the overnight train ride to Baltimore. Once in Baltimore, Lincoln made the transfer into a DC-bound train under cover of night without being recognized. Now, if there was truly uh, a presidential assassination plot underway in Baltimore, which, in all fairness, some people dispute, Kate Warren sniffed it out, and she made arrangements to circumvent the danger without the plotters becoming the wiser until after Lincoln was already safely through Baltimore. Alan Pinkerton ensured that, after Lincoln arrived safely in the Capitol, the episode was widely reported and became a huge public relations win for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. And Pinkerton detectives ended up providing security for Lincoln through, throughout a lot of the war. Remember, the, the U.S. Secret Service wasn't established until 1865, after Lincoln's assassination, and its original commission was as an anti-counterfeiting agency. It didn't actually get the job of protecting the president until two presidential assassinations later. President Garfield was shot and killed by Charles Guiteau, and President McKinley was shot in 1901 by anarchist Leon Solgos and died a week later from a resulting infection. Only then, later on in 1901, was the Secret Service formally assigned the responsibility for which it is now best known. Since then, only Kennedy has been assassinated, the CIA apparently getting the better of the Secret Service, though there was a close call with President Reagan. Unfortunately, information about Kate Warren's detective work after the Baltimore plot of 1861 is much less plentiful and probably less reliable. She continued to work undercover, reprising her role as a Southern lady and spying on the Confederates, while working closely with Alan Pinkerton as one of his most trusted agents. When General George McClellan hired Pinkerton to set up an intelligence operation, Pinkerton took Kate Warren with him to Cincinnati to work in the initial headquarters. After the Civil War, Kate Warren continued to work as a detective for the Pinkerton Detective Agency, continuing her own investigations and also managing the work of other female detectives. Her untimely death in 1868, at only age 34, brought an end to her career, but she is nonetheless remembered as an important figure in women's law enforcement history. Setting aside presidential protection, the Pinkerton Organization's most famous contribution in the Civil War, or at least the contribution that comes up most often in the history books, was the grossly excessive estimates of Confederate strength that the Pinkertons consistently provided to General George McClellan. At least part of the reason McClellan was so gun-shy about committing to battle with Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was that Alan Pinkerton and his men routinely informed McClellan that Lee's army was triple or more its actual size. All throughout 1862, McClellan, relying on Pinkerton, believed that the rebel force significantly outnumbered their Union counterparts, and so Little Mac acted accordingly. That inaccurate intelligence ultimately contributed to McClellan losing his job. George McClellan initially hired Alan Pinkerton early on in 1861, while Little Mac was in command of the Army's Department of Ohio. Pinkerton ran the well-known Pinkerton Detective Agency, a firm based in Chicago that also worked as a privatized police force or thugs for hire, depending on which side you viewed them from. McClellan and Pinkerton became acquainted while McClellan was working for a railroad that retained the Pinkerton Agency. They reconnected in the early months of the war, and McClellan hired Pinkerton to apply his trade in the service of the Union war effort. McClellan was summoned to Washington later on in 1861, and he brought Pinkerton with him, delegating to the famous detective the job of assembling the Army of the Potomac's formal intelligence outfit. Now, Pinkerton was smart enough to realize that, at least early on, he needed to prioritize counterintelligence over information gathering, try to plug up or at least slow down the torrent of sensitive information that was continuously leaking out of Washington and into Richmond. The Pinkertons' best source of information, or what they thought was their best source, was rebel prisoners and deserters, 
And while it's true that useful information could occasionally be gleaned from Confederate soldiers or escaped slaves who found their way into Union camps, that kind of intelligence was often unreliable, and it contributed to the frequent overestimation of rebel strength. There was also a problem with what today might be called disinformation. It was obtained from escaped slaves or rebel soldiers who posed as deserters, but who were actually plants deliberately feeding the Yankees inaccurate details about Confederate plans and numbers. Pinkerton also dispatched some of his more clever detectives to Richmond with orders to try to maneuver their way into Virginia's social scene. The goal was to infiltrate Confederate groups and gather intelligence on troop movements, battle plans, and other information that might prove useful militarily. Two of the most notable undercover Pinkerton agents were Timothy Webster, who was a veteran detective, and Hattie Lawton, uh, who was a relatively new hire and the Pinkerton Agency's second female detective. Timothy Webster was born in England. He had moved to New Jersey as a teenager, and he was in his late 30s when the war got going. After a few years working for the NYPD, he was recruited by Alan Pinkerton, and he started working for the Pinkerton Agency in 1853, only a couple of years after its founding. Pinkerton considered Webster, like Kate Warren, to be among his most talented and most trusted investigators. Early on, Alan Pinkerton sent Timothy Webster south with general instructions to try to obtain whatever militarily useful information he could dig up. Webster started off traveling to the Western Theater. With all the recruitment and organization going on, it was a good time to make connections, and Timothy Webster had the charm to excel in that department. After politely declining an officer's commission, which was offered to him uh, with a regiment of Arkansas volunteers, Webster headed toward Richmond with a prodigious amount of intelligence to pass to Alan Pinkerton. Webster's next assignment was to settle down in the Confederate capital, working with a partner, uh, this is where Hattie Lawton comes in, the two of them going undercover as a married couple. Hattie Lawton was a good-looking 25-year-old from New York, and Timothy Webster was married with several children in real life. But he and Hattie Lawton had worked together before using the same ruse, uh, alongside Kate Warren as part of the team Alan Pinkerton dispatched to Baltimore in 1861. Now, there was also a third member of the team, John Scobell, a black undercover union operative who played the part of Hattie Lawton's servant and worked on obtaining information from Richmond's free and enslaved black populations. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of information on Scobell beyond that. Timothy Webster was uh, apparently an exceptional spy because his charm and contacts from out west earned him a job working in close contact with Judah Benjamin, the Confederate Secretary of War. Webster became a fixture in the secret line, the network that connected Richmond to the Confederate agents in Washington and Baltimore. Because he was ostensibly working for Judah Benjamin, Webster had access to some of the Confederacy's most top-secret information. He had freedom of movement throughout rebel territory and bases, and he had an in to gain access to Richmond High Society, which his fake wife, Hattie Lawton, used to establish relationships with wives of politicians and officers. And Timothy Webster's status as a double agent uh, made him doubly valuable to the Union war effort. Not only did he supply Alan Pinkerton and the Union War Department high-value intel on Confederate plans and movements, he also provided information useful in sniffing out undercover rebel agents in Washington. It was a high-stakes situation that hit a major roadblock early in 1862 when Timothy Webster became seriously ill to the point where he was bedridden. Webster was the point man for the venture, so with him out of commission, the espionage was more or less put on hold. Timothy Webster had been one of Alan Pinkerton's best sources of intelligence, so when Pinkerton stopped receiving reports back from Webster, he got antsy, and he dispatched a second pair of Pinkerton agents, Price Lewis and John Scully, to figure out just what had happened to Webster and Lawton. Price Lewis was another top agent who had been working in counterintelligence in Washington. Uh, he'll make a cameo appearance in our episode about rebel spies. 
John Scully is less well known. Now, Price Lewis raised concerns uh, that he was not the right guy for this assignment because uh, he was known to too many rebels. Alan Pinkerton didn't think it would be an issue because uh, Price Lewis was just looking for Timothy Webster and Hattie Lawton, not doing any direct spying of his own. And that turned out to be a costly error that blew up the whole operation in Richmond because Confederate authorities most certainly did identify Price Lewis as a Pinkerton man. The thing was, Price Lewis didn't have any trouble locating the hotel uh, where the bedridden Timothy Webster was staying. The problem was that Webster had made so many friends uh, among the Confederates that both times the Pinkerton men visited Timothy Webster, there were Confederate officers in the hotel room checking up on his condition. A suspicious officer communicated the situation to General John Winder, who arranged for a family member of one of the rebel spies Price Lewis uh, had investigated in Washington to finger Lewis as a Pinkerton detective, and therefore a Union spy. So Price Lewis and his partner John Scully were taken into custody on suspicion of espionage. With a very quick turnaround, they were sentenced to hang but a representative of the British government stationed in Richmond intervened with Secretary of War Judah Benjamin, arguing that Price Lewis and John Scully had not received a fair trial. Now, here I should mention that uh, Price Lewis had been born in Wales, and he was still uh, officially a British subject. In response to the British consul's request, Judah Benjamin agreed to temporarily commute the execution to allow further hearing. Now, there are differing accounts of just exactly what happened next, whether um, Price Lewis or John Scully was uh, duped during interrogation uh, into confirming that what um, rebel investigators suspected but couldn't prove, or whether one of the two gave up information to save his own skin, or whether the Confederates had already figured the whole thing out anyway, or some other happenstance. The disagreement amounts to whether Price Lewis or John Scully uh, gave up information that blew Timothy Webster's cover, or this, whether the simple fact that Union spies had visited his uh, hotel room was sufficient for the rebels to figure it out. But one way or another, shortly after the Confederates arrested Price Lewis and John Scully, they arrested Timothy Webster and Hattie Lawton as well. After a peremptory trial on charges of espionage, a uh, capital charge dealt with much more aggressively in the 19th century than in the 21st, the Pinkerton detective and double agent Timothy Webster received a death sentence. President Lincoln attempted to intervene, communicating directly to Jefferson Davis that if the rebels carried out Webster's sentence, Confederate spies would receive precisely the same punishment. But it was no good. Timothy Webster was hanged as a spy in April 1862. He requested a firing squad, but that request was denied, hanging being the customary punishment for spies after all. Now, Hattie Lawton didn't fare uh, nearly so badly, perhaps benefiting from the chivalric spirit uh, on which Southerners prided themselves, or maybe the rebels made an example out of Timothy Webster because he was a, a double agent that did so much damage. Either way, Hattie Lawton was imprisoned and after a few months sent back north in a prisoner exchange. The Confederate spy for whom Hattie Lawton was exchanged, Belle Boyd, will figure prominently in our episode on Confederate espionage. Now, for their part, Price Lewis and John Scully spent over a year as rebel prisoners before being exchanged in 1863. The death sentence was not reimposed. Price Lewis had a falling out with Alan Pinkerton over the situation in Richmond, and he ended up doing some more intelligence work in Washington directly with the Union Army. After the war, he got married and settled down in New York, again working, working as a detective. Price Lewis uh, took a major hit in the mid-1880s when Alan Pinkerton wrote and released a widely read and heavily fictionalized account of the Pinkerton Detective Agency's work for the Union Army during the Civil War. Pinkerton's book portrayed Price Lewis in a very negative light, especially with regard to the capture of Timothy Webster by the Confederates. 
Lewis never recovered from the damage Pinkerton's book did to his reputation. Now, you can argue that history has been overly critical of the Pinkerton Group's uh, work as a privatized union intelligence operation, uh, with most of the attention giving to the uh, exaggerated reports of Confederate strength, uh, though in all fairness, that is pretty important. And it's possible that the checkered reputation the Pinkertons uh, earned later on uh, may have inclined historians to view them negatively. But the Pinkertons did have some Civil War successes, including by uncovering secret rebel plans for constructing the ironclad CSS Virginia, which cost the lives of many Bothans. And you maybe uh, need to grade on a curve since Pinkerton was building something new. Successors have the benefit of learning from their predecessors' mistakes. So with that said, uh, Pinkerton had been hired by McClellan, and he reported directly to McClellan. For all intents and purposes, he was McClellan's guy. So when Lincoln kicked McClellan to the curb, Pinkerton was out too. He went back to running the detective agency out of its Chicago headquarters, armed with a corporate resume highlight that the agency uses in its marketing materials to this day. It's worth noting, uh, though, that uh, as a footnote uh, to this section on the Pinkerton Detective Agency, that the Pinkertons did continue doing some work for the Union Army in other areas um, after Little Mac lost his job like investigating and sniffing out the rampant fraud in procurement contracts and payroll schemes. Under the Pinkertons, Union intelligence operations were, on the whole, mediocre, or at least not as effective as the rebel efforts. Things improved significantly when Joe Hooker took command of the Army of the Potomac in early 1863. While Hooker is not remembered as a particularly strong commander, he did recognize the inadequacies in Union intelligence gathering um, early on, and he made some good moves to fix that problem. Most notable among them was appointing Colonel George Sharp to take over as the Army's intelligence chief and to build an internal department focused on information gathering. And so instead of outsourcing the job, as McClellan had done, Hooker wanted to bring it back in-house. And I'll note here... Uh, that this section relies on the excellent uh, recounting of Colonel George Sharp's work um, in writer Arnold Bloomberg's uh, article, Civil War Intelligence, from Military Heritage Magazine in 2016. George Sharp, the Union Army colonel appointed by General Joe Hooker to take over the Army of the Potomac's intelligence operations, was a 35-year-old New Yorker a Yale Law School grad with experience in diplomatic work. He didn't have service experience in the Federal Army before the war, but he had spent some time as a captain in the New York militia. Colonel Sharp adopted the name Bureau of Military Intelligence uh, for his new intelligence division, but his big innovation was a structural change that made federal intelligence efforts look more modern by separating a broad-based approach to information gathering and dedicated analytics uh, in an approach now called all-source intelligence. Colonel Sharp's strategy was to first cast a wide net to gather potentially useful information from a much more diverse set of sources. Sharp encouraged his team to get more creative uh, in where they looked uh, for potentially useful data. They'd continue to use information from the traditional sources, uh, scouts and spies in the field and enemy prisoners and deserters, but they also added into the mix sources like pro-Confederate newspapers in Richmond or Atlanta, contacts with pro-Union Southerners who were not formally working as spies, uh, reports from hot air balloonists, and captured messages. And, of course, information from cavalry officers was part of the intelligence mix, too. Then, once they had gathered all possible useful information, Colonel Sharp's team distilled the accumulated data into basically... Um, uh, executive summaries with conclusions about rebel goings-on that were based on an analysis uh, of the much wider data set. Uh, the premise was that, um, for example, information from a spy in Richmond might not look useful in isolation, but might take on a, a new meaning when viewed next to different information from a cavalry scout in the Shenandoah Valley 
or a story in the Charlottesville newspaper. The Bureau of Military Intelligence eventually numbered about 70 dedicated agents and analysts who Colonel Sharp carefully recruited to ensure broad subject matter expertise throughout the Bureau. Arnold Bloomberg's uh, article recounts one of the early successes of Colonel George Sharp's team when they learned in 1863 of the transfer of Longstreet's Corps away from the Army of Northern Virginia's base of operations uh, along the Rappahannock River. Colonel Sharp sent out multiple Union scouts to investigate, including Sergeant Milton Klein, whose investigation turned into a remarkable two-week adventure. Arnold Bloomberg writes in the, uh, his article, Civil War Intelligence, that I mentioned earlier, quote, 38-year-old Sergeant Milton W. Klein of the 3rd Indiana Volunteer Cavalry Regiment obtained the best results, passing himself off as a Confederate scout. Uh, as a quick aside here, uh, by going in disguise uh, as a Confederate, um, Klein crossed the line between scout and spy. So if he gets caught, he's a lot more likely to uh, be hanged than to be taken prisoner. Okay, returning to um, Bloomberg. Klein managed to travel with the rebel-mounted detail, the length and breadth of the Army of Northern Virginia's positions, and well behind its front. The sergeant was not only able to report to his boss that part of Longstreet's corps had in fact withdrawn from the Rappahannock and headed southeast, but also gave the locations of more than 125 Confederate military camps and other installations. Klein's 250-mile sojourn between February 24th and March 5, 1863, was the deepest, most extended penetration of enemy lines by either side documented during the war. End quote. Sergeant Klein's two-week odyssey in disguise behind Confederate lines confirmed that Longstreet's Corps had, in fact, traveled southeast to near the North Carolina border to collect food and supplies. That meant that General Lee was missing about a third of his regular strength. Armed with that information, General Hooker planned an offensive, wanting to force battle against the undermanned rebels. Now, forcing the action while Longstreet's Corps was uh, away seems like a, a solid strategy. Um, like how when the other team's best defensive back is out, you might want to try throwing long. But the unfortunate postscript to Sergeant Milton Klein's story is that in spring 1863, General Hooker planned his march west around the rebel flank, a campaign that resulted in the Battle of Chancellorsville, which some historians describe as the highlight of Robert E. Lee's career as a general. Chancellorsville didn't turn out very well for the Federals, but that wasn't because Hooker wasn't better informed uh, about his adversary than his predecessors had been. Notwithstanding the results of Chancellorsville, the Union command structure almost immediately recognized that Colonel George Sharp's Bureau of Military Intelligence was a dramatic improvement to Union intelligence operations. There were still some problems, such as difficulties sorting through the tremendous amounts of information gathered and uh, jealous cavalry officers who weren't always willing to share their information with Sharp's team. But all in all, it was a big upgrade. Colonel Sharp's overhaul of Union intelligence uh, demonstrated its value again in the lead-up to Gettysburg. Reports from Sharp allowed Hooker, and then his successor, General George Meade, to recognize early Lee's intention to invade Pennsylvania. The Bureau's reports ensured that the Army of the Potomac was prepared to stay between the rebel army and Washington as Lee's men marched north through Virginia. After the rebels crossed the Potomac, the information General Meade had about Lee's strength and positioning gave him sufficient confidence of the Federal's superior numbers to commit to battle. Combined with the corresponding Confederate intelligence failures, the Bureau of Military Information was a significant contributor to the monumental Union victory. Of course, there are a lot of ways of analyzing the Battle of Gettysburg, but there's no denying that heading into the battle, the Union side held a big intelligence advantage that it may not have enjoyed if not for Colonel George Sharp's reforms. When General Grant took over in the East, he recognized the value that Colonel Sharp's Bureau of Military Information provided. So Grant kept Sharp in place, except with a promotion to Brigadier General 
and orders that, from that point forward, Sharp would report directly to Grant. General Grant trusted his intelligence chief, George Sharp, enough that when Jubal Early came within just a few miles of Washington in July 1864, causing a panic among the D.C. politicians and their families, Grant sent Sharp personally to visit Washington. Colonel Sharp confidently informed the civil authorities that Jubal Early's 13,000-man army was nowhere near large enough to pose a genuine threat to the capital's formidable defenses. The rumors in circulation around Washington were that Jubal Early commanded 100,000 rebels. Colonel Sharp reassured the unsettled politicians that those rumors were preposterous. For the duration of the war, Colonel George Sharp continued to run the Bureau of Military Information, and he became one of U.S. Grant's most trusted advisors. After the war, Sharp moved back to upstate New York, spending his remaining 35 years as a lawyer with occasional dabblings in local politics. He also benefited from having earned the confidence of General-turned-President Grant, receiving a couple federal appointments, including a post as U.S. Marshal in New York. Now, this is unfortunately not a natural breaking point, and I have a lot more material on Union Spies, but I'm having some software problems that are making it a lot more difficult to create this episode than it should be. So we're going to cut it off here for now. Call it part A of the show on Union Spies, and then part B will be out as soon as I can figure out why uh, the software keeps overwriting WAV files uh, whenever I try to edit them. Uh, Might end up just having to to re-record it. Regardless, big thanks to everyone for listening, and stay tuned for more on Civil War Espionage on the Union side, coming soon. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details